We've been in a series on Genesis, Genesis chapter 26, verse 17. And Isaac departed thence and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac digged again the wells of water which they had digged in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abram. And he called their names after the names by which his father had called them. Isaac's servants digged in the valley and found there a well of springing water. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his classic book, Revival, says, <clears throat> speaks of the urgent need for revival in our day. He speaks of the moral or amoral conditions of our society, the dreadful condition that we're in. The type of thing that he has in mind, I'm sure, was exhibited in uh, this magazine, uh, this month's magazine, uh, the Southern Magazine. It's not Southern Living, Southern Magazine. Article in there about the Apollo Ball in Birmingham, a gay ball. It says that uh, there will be more than 1,000 gay and straight guests attending the event, and uh, so on. The article is very favorable to this, and pictures anyone like myself who would feel that that's immoral as uh, a religious demagogue and as uh, being guilty of homophobia. Well, I am concerned about the spread of homosexuality in our society uh, with all the attendant evils that come along with it, disease, etc. We've already talked recently about abortion in our nation where in the last 15 years the equivalent of one-tenth of America has been slaughtered. One-tenth of the population of America. We need revival. The church needs to have power. People need their hearts touched. Characters need changing. He says that uh, this instance of Isaac uh, digging again the wells of Abraham uh, can picture here some of the elements in revival. Isaac was in trouble. Isaac uh, had been greatly blessed by God, and as his flocks multiplied, his neighbors became envious, and finally they asked him to move away from them. Verse 16, Abimelech said unto Isaac, Go from us, for thou art much mightier than we. So Isaac has to pick up his family, his uh, servants, his cattle, and move. And uh, when he gets to a new location, he needs water desperately for his cattle, so they won't die. And uh, he, instead of searching for new sources of water, he remembers that his father had been here, and his father was an expert on finding water. And so it says, he digged again the wells of water which they had digged in the days of Abraham his father. Uh, he goes back to the old source. He says, wait, I remember my father had a need like my need. 
What did he do? Where did he find water? I'll go back to that old source, that supply that met his need, can meet my need. Uh, the church has faced other times of great immorality in our nation or in other nations. Uh, when the church seemed unable to cast the demons out of society in a, in a sense of unable to meet the need, uh, needing power. And uh, as you read church history, you found that they went back to the old wells and digged again and found refreshing water. They found revival. Read church history. Every time the church is renewed and has vitality and power, she seems to be doing what Isaac did, going back to something that she'd forgotten, uh, something that had happened before, rediscovering and finding the ancient supply. When Isaac found the old wells, he found that the Philistines had stopped them up, and Martin Lloyd-Jones says that's what's happened to us. He likens the Philistines to religious liberals, liberal theologians, teachers, preachers, who stopped up the wells that bring revival. For instance, uh, you had a revival in the Reformation. Prior to that, you never heard the truth of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Uh, that God sent his Son who paid for our sins in full. And salvation is by grace, through faith, a sheer gift, not something you earn or deserve. And Martin Luther rediscovered it, that just shall live by faith. Wasn't something new, he's going back to the old truth. But it had been lost, the wells had been stopped up. And as he began to proclaim that, God began to give a refreshing to his people in his church. And wells of water sprung up. So it's always been. Uh, <clears throat> prior to the Great Awakening, the 1730s, uh, deism held sway in this country. Uh, you read about uh, the men who signed the Declaration of Independence. A number of them were deist. A number of them were true Christian, but a number of them were deist. God creates the world and then he backs off and lets it kind of run itself. And uh, again, you find uh, the men who whom God used to start the Great Awakening, going back to the wells, unstopping those and preaching these great doctrines once again of the guilt of man before a holy God. Christ is the only way of salvation through his death and resurrection. Salvation is sheer gift through faith in him. The need for true repentance. Uh, the need for the new birth. You must be born again. You've been born physically. You must be born spiritually. These great truths brought out again the authority of Scripture. The wells had to be unstopped. Well, what does revival mean? It means new life. You only revive that which had life before, and now the life is diminished, and you, you bring fresh life back. It happens primarily in the church. Uh, it affects the world, but it starts in the church. It's not an evangelistic campaign. You can't hold a revival. God has to send revival. And the essence of revival is that the Holy Spirit comes down on a number of people or on a church or on a city, on a whole district, on a country. God moves suddenly and powerfully. It spreads from place to place. The characteristics of revival. In general, there's an awareness of the presence of God. 
an awareness of spiritual things, has a terrible sense of sin and guilt, and men cry out under that. Uh, there's uh, a meeting may start at 6.30 in the evening and go until daybreak without anyone sensing that the time has passed. Let me read the description that Jonathan Edwards gave of what happened in Northampton when he preached there and God sent revival in 1735. Uh, He says it like this. There was a single person in the town, old or young, left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. Those who were wont to be the vainest and loosest, those who'd been the most disposed to think and speak lightly, of vital and experimental religion, were now generally subject to great awakenings. And the work of conversion was carried out in a most astonishing manner and increased more and more. Souls did, as it were, come by flocks to Jesus Christ. This work of God, as it was carried on, and a number of saints multiplied soon, made a glorious alteration in the town, so that in 1735 the town seemed full of the presence of God. It was never so full of love nor of joy, and yet so full of distress as it was then. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. God's day was a delight. The congregation was alive in God's service, in tears while the word was preached, some weeping for sorrow and distress, others for joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. Revival is a going of God among his people. Or you get some feel of, of revival. <clears throat> uh, you know, just reviewing briefly the history of such revivals, we've already mentioned the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. That was a revival. Uh, another one, 1727, the Moravian Revival in uh, Germany. Count von Zinzendorf had... Uh, gone into an art gallery where an artist had painted a picture of Jesus. And under that picture, it said, All this I did for thee, what hast thou done for me? And Count von Zinzendorf said, Nothing. I haven't done anything. And he went back determined to serve the Lord. A group of Moravian Christians had been driven out of their location and had no place to go. He took them on his land there. Begin to meet with them, and they began to pray. And they set up what they called the Lord's Watch, where they would pray around the hour. We're going to have a day of prayer where we pray around, they pray around. Every 24 hours, they assigned one woman, one man to pray for 24 hours. And that went on, not for a day like ours, that went on for 100 years. 100 years. And God sent revival. Amazing revival. 2,000-plus missionaries went out from that revival all over the world. I was speaking to a psychiatrist in our congregation who was in Newfoundland. And he said, you know, they traced the beginning of the first Christians coming back to those Moravians there in Newfoundland. And the first ones who came, they martyred them on the spot. But they kept coming. 1730 young man by the name of Charles Wesley attended a meeting of the Moravian Christians in Aldersgate Street in London. And as he listened to him read the preface of Martin Luther's commentary on the Book of Romans, he says, My heart was strangely warmed, and I felt I do trust in Christ alone. 
He was already a minister, but he didn't know the gospel. But now he knew it, and he began to preach faith, salvation by faith in Christ alone. Another young man joined him, George Whitfield. The two of them soon were not allowed to preach in churches because they preached, you must be born again. That was very disturbing to a dead church. And the churches were closed, so they began preaching in the fields to 30 and 40,000 people. And revival swept England under Wesley and Whitfield. Meanwhile, 1735 over here in Northampton, Jonathan Edwards began preaching a series, Justification by Faith Alone. Five or six young people were converted. One was a young lady who had been sort of the the life of the party around there in town, and when she got converted, everyone took notice. And soon a whole group of young people, and then the other townspeople, and revival began to sweep. Whitfield came over from England and joined in the revival over here. He went to Philadelphia first. At that time, the population of Philadelphia was 12,000 people, 1739. He preached on the courthouse steps three times a day to an audience of six to 8,000 people, over half the town there, to hear him preach. Now, he went up and down this country. He went to the Carolinas, Georgia. Uh, he went to uh, Maryland and so on. And uh, Ben Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, was in that crowd in Philadelphia who went to hear him preach. And he, he wrote this in his journal. He said... From being thoughtless and indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world was growing religious, so that one could not walk through Philadelphia in the evening without hearing psalms sung in different families on every street. Tremendous movement of God's Spirit. What was his theme? His theme was justification by faith alone, and you must be born again. He was opposed by some of the clergy. They wouldn't allow him in his churches, in their churches. When he went to Boston, the city of Boston welcomed him, but some of the clergy didn't. The very famous doctor of divinity there met him on the street. He said, uh, Mr. Whitfield, I'm sorry to see you here in Boston. Quietly, Whitfield replied, so is the devil. Well, God used him tremendously. In two or three years, thirty to 40,000 people were added to the churches. At the time, the entire population of New England was only 250,000. It's a tremendous movement of the Spirit of God. There were also a number of ministers converted. Twenty-two in Boston alone professed to be converted in those meetings. Uh, to train ministers now to handle the crowd, they founded Princeton Seminary, and Jonathan Edwards was chosen as the first president of Princeton Seminary. When Wesley died in England, he had 71 enrolled followers in England and 48,000 followers over here. Out of that came prison reform. Out of that came our child labor laws. Out of that came the abolishment of slavery in England under the leadership of Wilberforce, one of the men influenced by Wesley. 1790, you had a second great awakening. Prior to that awakening, William Carey, a Baptist pastor in London, and a group of men had been meeting together regularly and praying for eight years for revival, and God sent revival. Carey went to India as the first missionary, labored there 
40 years, and God did a tremendous work. We call him the father of modern missions. 1795, Yale College had a new president, Timothy Dwight. When he went there, all the students were infected with unbelief. And he had a meeting with the students. He said, well, tell me what you believe. And they had all the objections to Christianity, and he heard them all. He said, all right, now I'm going to preach a series of sermons and answer your objections. And as he began to preach his series, God moved mightily on that campus, and hundreds were converted. And uh, about that same time, at Hampton Sydney College, among the student body, there was not a single professing Christian. Four young men became concerned about conditions on the campus and decided that maybe we ought to start a prayer meeting. Uh, they sat a night and they met in their room, but other students heard about it and came and broke it up, determined they wouldn't let them pray. The president of the college, John Blair Smith, heard of the, of the fracas, went to see what it was all about. When he understood, he said, gentlemen, you'll have your prayer meeting. You'll have it in my parlor. I'll join you. Half the college came to that prayer meeting. Tremendous revival sprung up as God moved. In 1822, a law clerk by the name of Charles Finney went out in the woods to pray. God met with him in a marvelous way, converted him. He began preaching and was greatly used of God. Third Great Awakening surfaced in 1857 when a businessman in New York by the name of Jeremiah Lamphere, became burdened about conditions in his city and in his church. And uh, he put out a little flyer, prayer meeting, Wednesday noon, North uh, Reformed Church on Fulton Street. Join me in the consistory. Everyone's invited. He went there and waited, waited a half hour. Nobody came. Finally, he heard footsteps. One person joined him, then another. Six people came that first Wednesday. The next Wednesday, about 20 people were there. The next Wednesday, 40 people were there. Pretty soon, they had 6,000 people in various churches and various theaters. They opened theaters, praying, not one day a week, but every day in the week in New York City. And then it spread to Chicago, and soon 2,000 people were praying daily for revival in Chicago, and then the revival came. 10,000 were converted week by week. Uh, churches added tremendously. For instance, a typical example, the 13th Presbyterian Church in New York City received on a Sunday 133 members by profession of faith. A Trinity Episcopal Church in Chicago in uh, 1855 had 152 members. In 1856, they had 121 members. In 1857, they had 121 members. In 1860, they built a church sanctuary to seat 1,400. Revival had hit. And that was what was happening to the churches in those areas. 1904, a great revival broke out in Wales. A young man by the name of Evan Roberts had been praying for a revival for 13 years. And he prayed one day, God bend me, and revival came. Well, we could go on and on. You know, when revival comes, uh, often opposition to the revival comes also. Dr. John White, a Christian psychiatrist from Canada, uh, in his book, When the Spirit Comes with Power, uh, analyzes that, and he says, I want to help fellow Christians not to miss collaborating with God in revival through fear 
and undue fascination or misunderstanding. Uh, he points out that uh, when you have revival, you have problems. You have immature Christians involved. You have brand new Christians involved. You have sinners involved. You have Satan who gets in the picture also. He wants to do everything he can to discredit what's taking place. And uh, so uh, he quotes here some tests uh, uh, that uh, Jonathan Edwards gave as Jonathan Edwards analyzed these things carefully. He said, here are the following characteristics when you have an unusual work of God in revival. First, converted and unconverted men, women, and children, stunned by a vision both of God's holiness and his mercy, are awakened in large numbers to repentance, faith, and worship. Two, God's power is manifest in human lives in ways no psychological or sociological laws can adequately explain. Three, the community as a whole becomes aware of what is happening many perceiving the movement as a threat to existing institutions. Four, some men and women exhibit unusual physical and emotional behaviors. These create controversy. Uh, They can be an offense to opponents of the revival and a snare to its supporters. Five, some revived Christians behave in an immature and impulsive way, while others fall into sin. In this way, the revival appears to be a strange blend of godly and ungodly influences, of displays of divine power, and of human weakness. And we mustn't be thrown by those unusual things. Jonathan Edwards' dictum was, A work of God without stumbling blocks is never to be expected. Uh, So opposition to revival will come not only from sinners, but from Christian leaders on occasion. White says true revival has commonly been opposed because it comes dressed outlandishly. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his writings, describes uh, or illustrates Christ as a lion called Aslan. And he says, Aslan is not a tame lion. Aslan doesn't behave like you think he ought to. And we might say, well, uh, but isn't God a God of order? Yes, he is a God of order. Edwards comments on that, Jonathan Edwards. And uh, he says this, for, or White says this, <clears throat> um, for Edwards, order could be accompanied by the turbulence and noise of men and women crying out for pardon or falling on the ground and shaking, or even of the devil crying out with a loud voice. He considered it no more confusion than if a company should meet in a field to pray for rain and should suddenly be broken off from their exercises by a plentiful shower. So convinced was he of our folly in deploring confusion when the Holy Spirit is at work that he cried, Would to God that all the public assemblies in the land were broken off from their public exercises with neck with such confusion the next Sabbath day. Martin Lloyd-Jones warns, Fanaticism is a terrible danger. 
It arises from a divorce between Scripture and experience, wherein we put our experience above the Scripture, claiming things that are not sanctioned by Scripture. But a second awful danger is that of being satisfied with something very much less than what is offered in Scripture and reducing Scripture's teaching to the level of our experience. Well, uh, you can see that if we experienced revival here, we could expect strange manifestations and we could expect, expect opposition. Is a revival going on today? White says that part of his reason for writing this book was to analyze current movements of revival uh, and to test them by these tests that Jonathan Edwards laid out there of what could be expected. Uh, and he feels that revival is going on. He feels that in John Wimber's meetings that you find those same things occurring in John Wimber's meetings, but that you find God's power being manifested in a dramatic way. The signs and wonders uh, movement today in our country. What's been called the third wave of the Holy Spirit. Take Jonathan Cho's, uh, not Jonathan, uh, Yonggi Cho's church in Korea, in Seoul, Korea. When I was in Korea in 1980, I preached in his church. It had 114,000 members. Today, eight years later, that church has 600,000 members, one local congregation. Uh, they're currently building a building to seat 70,000, and they will have seven services on a Sunday. Uh, sounds like revival to me. In Argentina, there's a man by the name of Anaconda, a businessman. He owned a nuts and bolts factory that in 1982 felt God calling him to start holding evangelistic crusades. And wherever he goes, the churches wind up overflowing with new converts. Uh, Peter Wagner described the crusade that he held in San Justo. He said uh, that they had the revival for 40 nights straight. People would come at 8 o'clock and they would stand for four hours from 8 until midnight. Many stayed longer than that, but that's when the meeting was going on. Uh, they <coughs> registered 62,000 decisions for Christ during those 40 nights. Uh, people were healed dramatically. Uh, a peculiarity in his meetings, teeth are restored. People who've lost their teeth or whose teeth are rotten, suddenly they receive new teeth. You say, that's weird. I didn't say it wasn't weird. <laughs> uh, remember, God does some weird things. Aslan's not a tame lion. But if you're missing some teeth, you might want to go down there anyway. Isn't it? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Many other dramatic healings. Uh, demoniacs delivered. A lot, of, a lot of exorcism taking place. But real things happen. I believe revival is going on in a number of areas of the world today. What are the conditions of revival? God send revival. We can't hold a revival. But there are certain things when we dig again those wells. When we go back, we find that 
there were certain things that God used before in Scripture, and he, he tells us what to do. Uh, first, the faithful preaching of the great doctrines of Scripture, man's sinfulness, the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he was, what he did, salvation as a sheer gift through trust and surrender to Christ. Uh, great doctrines of Scripture, the new birth, the essentiality of the new birth. You must be born again through faith in Christ. Uh, uh, heartfelt repentance, calling on men to repent. When Evans Rogers, Evans Roberts began to preach in that Welsh revival, uh, he had uh, four points. One, is there any sin in the past that you haven't confessed to God and repented of? Is any present sin that you're doing that you need to turn from? Any doubtful thing in your life? Uh, you must obey God promptly when you see something in his word. You must publicly profess your faith in Christ and follow him. Heartfelt repentance. Remember Second Chronicles seven fourteen, where God says, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Repentance. A number of these, a number of these revivals broke out when church leaders really repented and turned from sin. And prayer. We need to pray. Well, we've got a good opportunity before us. Attend tonight and listen to Prayer and Revival. It's a great film by J. Edwin Orr, one of the great historians of revival. He's been with us before. Tremendous. Listen and, and, and really pay attention to the film tonight at 5 o'clock. And then... Uh, this conference coming up on prayer and revival. Sign up for the workshops. Come on Friday night, 7.30 here in the sanctuary for the prayer and praise. And then Saturday, take those workshops, which will be here. You need to turn in your registration for that. Uh, you have a little insert in your bulletin. And then sign up for that day of prayer starting next Sunday night. And uh, join in that. Let's really, let's really ask God to unstop those wells to send fresh water of the Spirit to his church. Evan Rogers said, Lord, bend me. Lord, send revival and let it begin in me. Let us pray. <coughs> As our hearts are bowed, uh, have you been born again? Have you experienced the work of God's Spirit in your heart and life? Have you trusted in Christ alone for your salvation and really surrendered to Him in true repentance? If you haven't, that's the starting place. Do that in your heart right now. Pray like this. Lord Jesus, I need forgiveness. I need a Savior. And I do trust you to forgive me as a gift based on your death. Come into my life. I surrender to you. If you have been a Christian all along, resolve to be part of a concert of prayer as we join together, unite our hearts. The Lord tells us if two of us agree as touching anything we ask, it shall be done for them of him. Let's unite together in praying for revival.
You be a part of that. Do it at home. Do it in groups. Join hearts and hands. There are thousands across our country. Let's join with them and pray for revival. Father, we ask that you would send revival to your church. Pour out your spirit. Lord, bend me. Lord, bend us. Lord, let it start here. Lord, put this on our heart in a way that it will stay there like it did with that Moravian church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.